It'll be online afterwards if you can't do Wednesday at 8 a.m., but every Wednesday at 8 a.m. there will be a deep dive live stream. Um, everybody with me? All right. Uh, if you're on the email list, you'll get a reminder. Uh, does everybody have an outline? If you don't, they're in the back probably. Uh, there are also note cards. If you have questions that you don't want to text or email or whatever, uh, throw your, write it on a note card and throw it in the bin. Or in the offering. I'm sorry, not the bin. That is not a bin. Uh, let's pray and let us uh, commence with the message on this balmy, warm summer day. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we praise you that your, your warm, loving embrace is around us. And we, we praise you that we are in the warmth of your grace and that you, you love us and care for us in the way you do. I pray as we dive into the text today, as we start looking at what the scriptures have for us, that, uh, you, would, that you would open our hearts, that you would put words in my mouth that are from you and not me, that your spirit would come out of this, that the, the scriptures would be um, just opened up and the treasures within like brought out for folks to, to enjoy and, and grow on and consume in their hearts and minds. I pray for the folks who are here that the worries and the frustrations and the, the hurt feelings of the past and everything else that might get in the way of them hearing the gospel and knowing Christ more, that everything would be taken out of the way and just, just put on a shelf forever. I pray that you would bring healing and knowledge of you and your son through this time that we have together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid, right? So when I was a kid, I mean like a real kid, not the pretend kid that I am now. Uh, my siblings and I played a lot of board games. And I remember we would have these moments where we would get excited about playing a board game. I have an older sister and a younger brother. And we would gather up and we'd say, oh, we're going to do this. And we'd We'd sometimes play games, like, with different objectives, right? Like, sometimes we'd play a game just to learn how to play it. Or we'd play a game so that I could beat you again. Um, or whatever. But the one game that absolute, absolutely stands out in my head was, was Monopoly, because we'd play it a lot. And the craziest thing, like, about us playing Monopoly, you know, my sister's a year older and my younger brother is... I don't know, three, four years younger than me, something like that, um, I'm sorry, uh, is that we would play Monopoly, and our goal every time was to finish the stupid game. And we never did. I have never played a game of Monopoly with my siblings from start to finish. Every single time. We would get hyped up. We're going to finish it. We're going to play it until it's done. And we would set out to do it. And after a little while, we would get, what's the word? Bored, not distracted, bored. There were two things that would happen. We would get bored or we would get angry. This is how almost every game of Monopoly ended in my house. With shouting, what? It is a board game. Yes, it's like the game Sorry, where the game makers are like, yeah, we apologize in advance. Stop it. You're going to get me off on a tangent here and I'm going to be in trouble. So the game would end with us getting angry and yelling at each other and fighting. And like, like half of us would be bored or distracted or me, I would be bored and I'd cheat just because it was more interesting than the game. You know, you'd try to get money out of the bank or you'd add little properties in or whatever. And, and like, like it just was no fun. 
It was not a fun game, which is crazy because if you look at the ads for Monopoly, they make it look fun. But those ads are lies. Monopoly is not fun. It is a game that you set out to have fun playing. You look at it, you say, the ad shows a happy family, will be a happy family, and we'll play and enjoy and everything else. And about halfway through the game, you lose sight of the objective, which was to have fun and enjoy your family, right? And then you start getting aggressive. And you start trying to win. And after a little while, I am not your family member. I am your enemy. And my objective is to grind you under the boot of park place and hotels and, and like, like hurt you as badly as I can or point out why the way you're playing isn't fair. Right? And that was it. And we're going to talk about Monopoly a little bit today, but as we, like in relation to Ecclesiastes, we are at sort of the hinge of the, the chapter we're in. We're going to get into that later, but um, the next several sermons. We're going to do a series looking at the way God intended work to be in our lives, intended money, work, all of it, how it's supposed to work. Um, Last week, we talked about how it doesn't work, right? And so we're going to be looking at kind of God's economy, um, the world from God's perspective. And in a very real way, the world we live in, where we go to work and work becomes so stressful and begins to invade other parts of our lives, and money becomes so important, and everything else where we're just doing so much that life begins to be awful. Anybody ever experienced that? Just me? Not here. I mean, this place is wonderful. Um, but, like, like, all of that stuff, it happens because, like playing Monopoly, we lose sight of the purpose of the game. Right? Instead of being about enjoying the game, instead of being about enjoying the gifts that God has given us, our families, work itself, you know, like God Himself, salvation, like all of the beautiful and wonderful things in their time, we stop enjoying them because we lose sight of everything else and we try to win the game. And then no one has fun. And work becomes everything. So, we're actually going to start out in Matthew. I have so much stuff I want to talk about in relation to this. And it'll be in the next few days, not this morning. FYI. Um, Jesus is teaching. And, like, the reason we're going to approach this from Jesus, right? Like, we're starting in Jesus. Originally, this was at the end of the sermon. I moved it to the front because this is the lens through which work makes sense. Okay? And I'll explain why in a minute. But understand, it's like those 3D glasses you used to get with comic books. You know what I mean? Where you look through it and all of a sudden you could see things in 3D. Or you could pick out the secret code because you have the special glasses. This is the decoder. And so, like, Jesus is there. He's teaching in Jerusalem. The the guys who are against him have decided we're going to trap him. And so the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who are like the guys who are devoted to King Herod, not Herod the Great, Herod the Not-So-Great, um, they get together and they're like, let's trap him. And so they go to Jesus and they say... A bunch of stuff. They butter them up. Hey, you're so smart. You're so wise. You're so awesome. We know you don't, like, take anybody's opinion for granted. Like, like nobody's status influences you. So tell us, and here's the trap, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And Jesus threw down his hat and said, taxation is theft. No. Um... Sorry, that was a terrible joke. 
I, <laughs> it was an internet joke. Um, so the, like they ask him, and you might look at that and say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem very trappy to me. Like, how is this a trick? Well, there's a lot to it, and actually a lot of what's to it is going to have to go elsewhere. But they're giving him a no-win situation. They're saying, look, should we reject Caesar? And if Jesus says that, then they can go to the authorities. Jesus can be arrested because he's speaking sedition against the Roman Empire. So the trap there is speak against Rome or advocate for taxes. Uh, Jewish people hated paying taxes. Real quick, does anybody like paying taxes? Are some taxes worse than others? What this is probably a reference to is what's called a poll tax. A poll tax is something we don't have now. It is where everyone in the country is taxed by merit of being there. It's not an income tax. It's not an anything tax. It is a one denarius per person goes to the emperor. And so, like, if you're a Jew and you're paying your taxes, it might make sense to pay a toll because you got a pretty nice road and people guard it, Right. Um, you, an import tax. Yeah, they built a port. I guess an import tax benefits me. A poll tax is a tax for the benefit of being part of the empire. And the Jews didn't want to be part of the empire, right? And so they grumbled about this because they got nothing out of it. The other reason they grumbled about it is because it cost a denarius. A denarius was a silver coin that represented about a day's labor for the average person, right? That denarius the Jewish people would look at it and say, it's idolatrous. And it was idolatrous because it refers to Caesar as God. It's got a graven image of Caesar himself, um, probably Tiberius in this case. And on the back, it's got the high priest of the cult of the emperor. Um, And like it says, the Pontifex Maximus, right? Which isn't Latin, so I would be mad too. Um, But it's Latin for the highest priest in reference to Tiberius. So it's talking about Tiberius as a god, like, and it's sort of idolatrous because it's a graven image. And in fact, you couldn't bring the denarius into the temple. I've got to be careful. I'm going to get off on this. This is a huge topic. It's so interesting, but I can't do it all, okay? Uh, they, you couldn't bring it into the temple because it was a graven image. It was a pagan thing. And so you would have to exchange your money for temple money with a slight exchange rate. Um, and then... You could make your offering in that, but you couldn't make an offering in the denarius. They wouldn't, well, they'd probably accept it, but it'd be sinful for you, not them. Um, and so they say, well, listen, should we use this sinful Roman money and pay this poll tax? By the way, one of the subtexts of the poll tax, talk about this a little bit more during the week, um, is that it is tithing to our divine Caesar and showing that he is boss over us. So the Jews really didn't want to pay it. You know what I'm saying? So they're saying, do we do idolatry or do we fight Rome? And so he clearly can't choose the option in front of the Jews. And he clearly can't choose the option in front of the Romans. It was inconceivable that he could come up with the right answer. Um, And so he doesn't give them the answer they're looking for. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent and seeing an obvious trap, I mean, holy Jiminy Cricket, you hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And you got to think, he's standing in a crowd of people, and one of the Pharisees reaches into his pocket and pulls out a denarius. And so, number one, he's trapped him, and he's just made him look like like a hypocrite. You know why? He's got one. 
It's hypocritical for you, not for me. Because he's got this idolatrous coin on him. But he hands it, like he takes it out. There's the denarius. Everybody's seen one. And he says, they brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is on this and whose inscription? Um, I'll talk a little more about this during the week. Really interesting. But whose picture is on it? Whose inscription is on it? And they replied, Caesar's. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, here is the tricky part. And I, has anybody heard a sermon on this text before? Has anybody heard a sermon really just about taxes and money on this sermon before? On this particular verse before, right? Like this is a tax passage. Um, watch this. What is happening here is, first off, like Jesus tells them two things, and this is how we understand God's perception of value and what real value is in our lives. First, Jesus told them to give Caesar his due, like we live in this world for now, right? And you've got to play by this world's rules. We have to deal with it. We are stuck. Ultimately, though, that money, it ain't going to matter. It's just not. In eternity, that money is nothing. Right? And since Caesar's picture is on it, right? Like you pick up the Monopoly money, Uncle Pennybags is on it, right? Um, and, and like that's his picture. So it's, it's, it's Uncle Pennybags money. It's Monopoly money. It's not real. Caesar's money isn't real. You know why? Because it's just money. It's just this world. And in fact, actually, one of the reasons kings would put their pictures and their names on money was to let everybody know, I'm king. Right? This is my kingdom. If I give you guys Eric bucks, you know what they're worth? A good laugh. Right? Because I have no authority to issue currency. Caesar could issue currency, and by accepting and using his currency, they were acknowledging, you're in charge. Another thing the Jews didn't like. But he's saying, listen, this money, it's Caesar's. It's this world. My kingdom isn't of this world. So when we give God things that have value to him, the only thing that we have that bears his image and his inscription on our hearts is us. In God's economy, stuff, cars, success, envy, possessions, money, um, being the hardest worker on the block, whatever the nonsense, it is only of value in the game, in this life here and now, real value is what Christ came to purchase with his blood. You. Look to the right and to the left. Those are people who are image bearers of God. They belong to him. They have value. In God's kingdom, real value is not money. It's us. Everybody with me? When your life ends, the same as with Monopoly, when the game ends, what do you do with it other than flip it over and yell at each other? You put it back in the box and you put it on a shelf. If you save up your Monopoly money, I, you know, if I say, look, you know what? I won Monopoly. I am set for life, guys. Right? I am set. I, I got $1,000 for anybody who will give me their... Uh, I don't know. Somebody want to, I'll give you a good exchange rate. I will give you $1,000 for $500. Anybody want to take it? Of course not. You know why?
because this money only has value in the game. And once the game goes back on the shelf, it's over and it has no more value. It's paper. When, like, you can't keep the property, you can't keep any of it. There's no value except in that context. When you, when your life ends, you will go in a box, right? Whether it's as ashes or, well, you might get lost. I don't know. It's, assuming none of you get lost at sea. Um, you'll get buried and all of your stuff, you ain't keeping it. And it will have no more value. It might as well be monopoly money to you, right? It ain't nothing. It is a temporary thing that only exists in the game, in the life we're living. And so our stuff in the long, long term, in God's economy, is worthless. So work in light of God's economy. Like, what are we going to do with this? What's the lens we bring to the table here? In Christ, we're given an eternal context for understanding work. And my analogy here is Monopoly, right? This would be like living in the Monopoly game and suddenly discovering that there's a life outside of it, right? Could you imagine that? Like you're a little, I don't know, thimble? And suddenly you realize there's going to come a time when the game's going to end and I'm not going to be a thimble anymore and I can do something that's actually fun instead of playing Monopoly? Like, Jesus shedding the light of eternity onto our temporary reality is miraculous. When we look at Solomon's writing, he is examining work in Ecclesiastes in terms of the game. Because he didn't have Christ's perspective. And so when we read it, we're going to see that. But if we bring the lens out and we look at it in terms of Christ, we get something better. Anybody cooking yet? What's it called when you put, like, it's parboiling, right? I'm cooking. Um, Cooking in the word, sorry. Um, Ecclesiastes. So we're going to jump back to Ecclesiastes. Tiny little bit of reboot, rewind. In Ecclesiastes 3, he says, listen, God put eternity in us. We desire eternity. We hunger for it, but we don't get it because of sin. We're broken. We will die. And so he says, listen, since we can't see, experience, or know eternity, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift from God. This is like the fourth time I've read it to you. I'm sorry. Um, But it's huge because eternity is in our hearts. We want it. We don't get it. And so the best we can do is here and now enjoy. But it is enjoy doing good, meaning walking with God. Enjoy your eating and drinking and the fruit of your labor, meaning Enjoy the people that are around you. Enjoy the gifts God has given you. And enjoy work, which is a gift. But it is not the gift, right? It is a gift. The problem is sin has screwed it up and made it all wonky. And it invades everything. And it makes life pointless. Last week, we came up with three examples, right? Like like he gave us three examples. And I'm not going to go through them today because it will take too much time. Uh, but we're going to look at the last one just briefly. This is Ecclesiastes 4, 7 to 8. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man who was all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? 
This too is meaningless and a miserable business. This is a man who is a workaholic. And that gift that he's been given to enjoy life and the fruit of his labor, like as a workaholic, as a man who focuses too much on the business, the farm, the, the work I do, the money I take in. As a guy who's overly focused, it's eclipsed everything else. Anybody else ever done that? You make your kids miserable with work? You make your wife a widow with work? You cheat on your family with work? You know what I mean? It happens. It happens so quickly. And this man is alone and he is joyless. And there are men who I, who like you'll run into every day. There are probably some in this room, but I don't know if that's you. I'm just talking. Um, who are surrounded by people who love them, but they're alone and joy, joyless because they don't receive the gift as a gift. They are not enjoying the gifts they have. They're enslaved to work. And who is the slave driver? Themselves. That's the worst. If you are keeping yourself captive and you hold the keys but you refuse to let yourself out, oh, be better. I don't know. Like, there's no joy in that. We are meant to enjoy community, work, rest, and relationship with God. Like, and in fact, actually, there's a whole side note I had to cut. But, like, we were meant to be in community. We were meant, it is not, like, so when God creates everything, right? It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. Right? Animals, uh, plants, coffee, and God says, I've created it, it is good. That's a moral imperative good. And so when he says, it is not good that man should be alone, we generally read that as a reference to husband and wife, but in reality, it is everything. It is not good for us to be alone because we were meant, we were created to be in relationship with God and each other. It is built into you. It is a part of your design, like diesel gas in a diesel truck, right? You put regular gas in. You put that sissy ethanol stuff in. You try to plug it into one of those weird, like, electrical Tesla nonsense things. It ain't going to work. We're meant to be in community. And if we try to live outside a community, feeding ourselves with something like our work or alcohol or pornography or whatever, try to feed ourselves with that, we're going to break down because it's not our design. The other thing we do in work is we make each other better as iron sharpens iron. And it is not just growing spiritually. We oftentimes apply that to you kicked my butt and made me see my sin. Therefore, iron sharpens iron. In reality, iron sharpens iron because we make our lives better across the board. This is the truth of it. This is a broken version of creation. Work out of whack because work is a gift. It is not everything. So we come to verse 9. 20 minutes in, we get to the text I'm preaching on. Um, Ecclesiastes 4.9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. This is a no-brainer. Everybody understands this, right? There's actually a bunch of layers to it. Um, but before we get to the layers, real quick, I'm going to talk about something. See the pyramid? This is like section is what's called a chiastic poem or a chiastic structure. It is where there is one verse in the middle that is the point. There are examples on one side and examples on the other, almost always the same number. Usually they parallel each other, and the verse in the middle is the point. And all the other stuff is to enhance the point. We had three examples of work out of whack. We're about to look at three examples over the next three weeks of work in God's context the way it's meant to be, and right in the middle we have our verse, the point of the whole section about work. 
two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Meaning, hire farm hands or have sons. Thank you for coming. Um, the main point, Solomon's response to work out of whack is to point us back to community. Work and rest are parts of life, but community is a part of everything. It's like saying breathing. I have to breathe and I have to work, right? If you don't breathe at work, guess what's going to happen? Your shift is going to be short. Like, that's it. We look at our lives, God is over, and then our community relationships with God upward, with those around us, Work, rest, everything else is underneath. Um, how does that play out? Well, we're the, like God's economy in the game. So from the perspective of Solomon, in the world we live in, playing Monopoly, right? So we are on the board. You are the thimble. You are the little dog. Um, whatever it is you are. I'm sure the car, the car. Um, like we lose perspective that like this game is a gift when we make our life Community versus work, right? Instead of community being over everything. Losing perspective means saying work is more important than my marriage. Got it? Work is more important than my kids. Work is more important than having relationships with my brothers in Christ. Work is more important than caring for people around me who need help. Work is everything. Like the moment that happens, we're out of perspective and everything is off. Um, we work to support our family. We're in community with our coworkers. We serve the church and the community through our work and our income and everything else. Like work is a part of everything, but relationships are it. The image of God on you and the people around you, right? And God himself are the treasures of heaven. We lose sight of that when we think it's money, or a crown, or something else. Like, yeah, you earn a crown of righteousness, but that crown of righteousness, every jewel in it is going to be somebody that you introduce to Christ. That's it. Because I'll tell you, I love the end of Schindler's List where he comes up and he says, listen, this pen, I could have bought three lives with it. That car is a hundred lives, people I could have saved. It's all worthless. There'll be a day where you cross into heaven and you'll look and you'll say, who did I leave behind? That was kind of harsh. Is anybody still awake? It's hot, man. I'm cooking, trying. Um, so a good reward for his toil. What the heck is that about? What's he talking about? Here are the things that he's talking about in terms of within the game. First off, you get more done. That's why you hire hands and have sons or daughters. Um, because there's more workers. It is good to work in a group because you get more done. Like, that's the obvious one. If that is the only thing that comes to mind, you've lost perspective. Everybody with me? The second, working and community, they just go well together. Have you ever had an awful job you had to do and you were surrounded by people who had to do it with you and nobody wanted to do it and it was hard and it was hot and you were tired and you were miserable and it was dirty or whatever and by the time you were done, you were about like welded to those people. You had a unique relationship with them that was forged in the fire of a bad work day. Anybody? Working with people binds you to them. It glues you together. It's like camping. Nobody likes camping. You camp so you can be closer to the other people you're camping with. So afterwards, you can look back and say, remember when we had to eat that awful stuff? It's wonderful. Not at the time. And so when we work together, we develop relationships. We grow close to each other. And for some men, that's the only relationships they have that are significant. Right? 
That's hard. Community gives us something to go home to at the end of the day. The rich man in the verse is right before our point verse, right? Who am I working for? I got no sons. I got nobody to share it with. I got no joy in life. If you've got no one to come home to at the end of the day, and I am not just talking about blood, the body of Christ, your friends, the people you're close to, the people you pray with, the people you hold accountable, the people that you call them up to make sure they're okay because their wife just died or because they're, you know, they're struggling with finances and you help them out. Like that is something worth coming home to. If all there is is work and nothing else, you've got no reason to be anywhere but work. And if you take work home with you and it dominates your family life, you lose everything that's worth having in community. Finally, In community, we have somebody to celebrate with and mourn with and stand with and stuff. If you've got people who you can celebrate with, joy shared is increased. Sorrow shared is decreased. Community makes it all better. So if we're going to step back and say from the God's eye view, from outside of the game, the Monopoly board is what it is, but from the outside, looking down at the game, God's perspective, what do we get out of this verse? In Ecclesiastes, we see a man who has gained the whole world and he has lost his soul. He's also lost his family and his friends and joy and everything else because he didn't recognize that the really valuable stuff was not this. Not the monopoly money in the game. It was the time he had with the people he loved. The gift that God gave him and the people around him. The, the ability to encourage your wife to grow close to Christ and become something better. The, the opportunity to see Christ in your children. The opportunity to be Christ to somebody who's hungry or alone or lost. Isn't that amazing? That's wealth. In Ecclesiastes, we see a man who has nothing but thinks he has everything. Huh. In our life, we do not work for a crown that, that, like, doesn't last. This money will go away. As a follower of Christ, we work for something that will last forever. We work for something that is eternal, that is worth having, and that is in eternity. That is the people you bring with you. That is Christ himself. If you walk into heaven and you see the streets paved with gold, which I actually don't think is scriptural, but follow me. Um, you look at the streets paved with gold and you say, I can have all of this gold. It's the rough equivalent of walking out of the building and saying, look, somebody left all this gravel out. I can take it home, right? There's no value in gravel. That's why we put it on the road. The only thing that has value in heaven is Christ, is God himself. And if I know Christ more now, when I arrive, I know him more. If I become more like Christ now, I walk into heaven with more. If I bring people with me who are like Christ because they're saved, I show up with more. In God's economy, money is not valuable. It is only Christ. And the crown we bring, like like the wealth we store up, if it's in this life, moth and rust is going to eat it. Someone's going to get it in a garage sale. Our real wealth is in eternity. So the treasure we accumulate in heaven is all related to the image of God. I've talked about this a couple times. I'm sorry I'm getting ahead of my outline. So our neighbors, intimacy and closeness with God, like all of this stuff, we live in community as the body of Christ, and that is bound for eternity. Finally, in Ecclesiastes 4.9, we see two are better than one 
So now it's easy to think about this as the guy next to you, but in reality, this applies to our fellowship and our relationship with Jesus. I'm a man who has preached hundreds of sermons, right? And I will tell you, when I do it in conjunction with my relationship with Jesus, when I pray and I search for the Holy Spirit, better things happen than when I'm really clever and I ignore God altogether, when he's an accessory to my message. You and Christ will do things that will last forever. You and you will do things that are the things you do, I guess. As followers of Christ, we are also his friends. When we work, he works in us and through us, and the results are eternal. And so two is better than one for their, like, like their work produces a better result. Um, this is the first Sunday of the month. We do communion on the first Sunday of the month, almost fell off the stage. We do communion on the first Sunday of the month. Um, and this is a big deal. And, and follow me here. All of us will work in our lives for stuff that appears valuable. When we gather and we take the Lord's Supper, we take the most common everyday stuff in the world and we use it to remind us that Jesus Christ shed his most precious blood to pay for your sins. And we consume it to remember the only thing that will nourish my soul is Jesus Christ himself. This stuff, bread and the fruit of the vine, is worthless. It's everywhere. Christ is the most valuable thing, and our world will never understand it. In God's economy, when Christ took his bread and he broke it and he raised it up, he was using the most, like everybody ate bread every day. Right? There was no keto dieting. Um, but he was taking his body and he was saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you are a person who is here and you know Christ and you are following Christ, do this with us. We welcome everyone to take communion. Take it when you feel led. But know as you take it, it is the body of Christ broken for you. 